Good morning. Good to be with you again today. My name is Brian. I am on the board here at Baptist Church, and sometimes I get to preach, which is my favorite thing to do. And this is a pretty good week to be preaching in. Sometimes when you're, you're preaching, you want to stir people up a bit. You've you, you got to figure out what, what's important. You want to draw them into it. This week, we don't have to do that. We're already anticipating. We know that next weekend is Easter, and we're already sort of thinking about that. Okay, the chocolate is nice. I agree. I thank God for creating chocolate. But what else do we celebrate? So this morning on Palm Sunday, we're going to look at how this week began for Jesus, for his followers, for Jerusalem, for us, for the world. And we're calling it Return of the King. Should be excited about that. Should have a million questions in our minds when we think about this moment where Jesus returned to Jerusalem as king. As king. Steve read us part of the passage in Matthew. Let's just go through the whole thing and put it in a bit of context. Matthew 21, 1 to 11 is what we're going to look at, reading the ESV. Before we do that, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who's here to teach it to us. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. In other words, steal them. In that day it would be considered grand theft auto. But he says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he'll send them at once. The Lord needs them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's a quote from Zechariah. The strange promise that, huh? I mean, I can think of Jesus meeting my needs if he arose, if he arrived on a, a tank, you know, a big tank with some soldiers. He could meet my needs arriving in an ambulance, take care of all the sickness, or a delivery truck from the grocery store, just feed me. He, he came into town on a donkey. Wow. Doesn't look very majestic. Carrying on then, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And this is where it gets kind of weird, but kind of neat. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Palm branches, so we call it Palm Sunday because this was this small but significant parade that was coming into town. And the crowds that went before him 
And that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's a lot of words. They weren't just making them up as they went. They're singing an old song that was very important to them at this time of year. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Oh, so it's bigger than just a guy riding into town and a few friends. The crowd said, sorry, this whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? I, you know, this is interesting, but can I be part of it? Is this something I want to be a part of? Is this somebody I would like to wave some palm branches for? What's going on here? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. It's kind of a loaded statement. For one thing, his name was Yeshua, which means God saves. Now, there are a lot of people given that name throughout scriptural history. It's pronounced differently depending on how much mashed potatoes they had in their mouth, but Yeshua, Yeshua, Yehoshua. In fact, the Old Testament book of Joshua is it's the same name. But he's from Nazareth of Galilee, which is okay. There would be a lot of people from Nazareth of Galilee in the city at this time to celebrate Passover, but for the people in Judea, the people in Jerusalem, Galilee was kind of considered... They told Galilean jokes. They mocked Galilean accents. Hmm. I don't want to offend anybody. But Galilee, if you were living in Judea, Galilee was kind of Newfoundland. They're, they're neat, they're fun, but they're different. <laughs> and I never met a person from Newfoundland who didn't enjoy being different on Ailey. The best Newfie jokes I've ever heard were from Newfies. Anyway, Nazareth in Galilee, it's so far up the valley. It's, and they teach slightly different stuff, a different denomination up there. So when they say this, it's kind of, oh, and it's kind of, oh. Anyway, that's what they said. But people were ready for somebody and they all had different ideas of who somebody would be, but they basically had one name for this person, the anointed one, Moshiach. We just say Messiah. Or Christ, the christened one, the anointed one, the one who is given a job and an empowering to do that job. And they felt like they needed one. They had been brought out of captivity. They had rebuilt their city, and the Romans had moved in. In fact, there were a few battles that took place as the Parthians and the Romans kind of traded Jerusalem. They were used to wars around them. And they were not owners of their own houses. It was part of the Roman Empire. They had to pay the emperor of Rome just to be alive. And they were so tired of that. The Romans brought with them all kinds of pagan idolatry, practices that to the Jews were immoral, unacceptable, a bad influence on our children. Sitcoms and rap music, that's what the Romans brought. And the Jews were tired of it. 
They were looking for a Messiah. They were desperate for a Messiah. And you know, there were actually many people at that time claimed to be Messiah or others that other people said, you must be the Messiah. This might not even be the first time they met someone at the gate waving palm branches. Are you the one? But if we look into what they believed at the time, they weren't just waiting for a Messiah. In fact, they were expecting Messiahs, more than one. Because there's so much in the Hebrew Scriptures that point towards Messiah, and yet some of it seems so contradictory. They were waiting for the Messiahs. And there were two main Messiahs that they expected. When they looked at Scripture, they could put most of those prophecies into two categories, and one of the messiahs was going to be the son of David. David was a great king in their history. He had united the country. He was a godly man who wrote part of the Bible, killed Goliath, drove out the Philistines. Yeah, we could use, we could use David. Not only that, but God had promised that a son of David would sit on the throne in Jerusalem again the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So yes, we look for the son of David, but they looked at so many other scriptures that seemed to contradict, that talked about the Messiah suffering for others, giving up his life even. And so they said, hmm, David's not that guy. Maybe Joseph is that guy. And they look back to the story of the Exodus And just before there, there's Joseph, the son of Jacob, that went to Egypt. And you know, in in the Scripture, in that whole story, it never says Joseph did anything wrong. It doesn't say that he sinned. Now, they're not implying that he was perfect, but the point is, in this terrible story of Joseph, who suffered in so many ways, sold into slavery, sent to prison. I mean, bad things happened to him, but in the story, never once is it his fault. Joseph always suffered because of other people's sin. And they took that story, compared it to so many other prophecies, and said, hmm, there's going to be a Messiah who's going to be the son of Joseph, who's going to suffer because of other people's sin. But in their mind, they couldn't put those two into one person. So we're waiting for Messiah, the son of David. We're waiting for Messiah, the son of Joseph. And then Jesus comes along, and he's from the tribe of Judah. In fact, he's a descendant of royalty. He is literally a son of David. Through his mother's line, he traced it right back. But here's the thing. He had a stepdad whose name was Joseph. So, in fact, Jesus in his life was both a son of David and a son of Joseph, which is pretty interesting. But this idea of what will Messiah be, what will Messiah be like, is an argument that carried on because they were trying to grasp what God was going to do. There's an old saying, and I don't think it's an insult, so let me explain it a bit. But the saying is, where you have two Jews, you have three opinions. You see, it's not an insult because the point is when you've got two sages, two learned men arguing about something, if they think they've solved it between them, they'll bring in a third opinion to sort of, okay, no, let's wrestle it more. Let's build on it. Let's, let's check what we've 
decided with what someone else thought. And, and they did this with the scripture. They unpacked, they unrolled the scrolls. And there was a guy a couple hundred years after Jesus who was one of these amazing scholars, this wise and godly man, and he, just, he wrestled with this stuff. And he went into two passages of Scripture. One of them was Daniel 7.13. Daniel 7.13 says, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. David, or Daniel has this vision of a triumphant Messiah riding on the clouds. Now, for you and me, we, most of us have done that. It doesn't seem like a big deal. But if you're used to riding on camels and donkeys, the thought of being up there... That's pretty freaky. How can you be above the clouds? Wow. That would take one wonderful trampoline to accomplish that. And yet, that is exactly what Daniel saw. So this guy, it was uh, uh, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi, and, and, and he said, that's important. But then he said, what about Zechariah 9.9? Zechariah 9.9 9 says, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he is, humble and mounted on a donkey. That's the same passage that was just quoted, that the people were singing out. And so this Hebrew sage wrestled with these two passages, and he came to this conclusion, which is pretty amazing. He said, if when Messiah comes... The people are not ready for redemption. That's when he'll be on a donkey. But when Messiah comes, if the people are ready, he will come on the clouds. You see how he grasped this problem of two messiahs? It doesn't have to be two. It just has to be the right one at the right time. So when God sends Messiah, if the people aren't really ready, he will come in on a donkey. But when they are ready, he will ride in on the clouds. A wonderful way of putting those two images together, those two Messiahs into one story. So let's back up a little bit and go back to Matthew 21. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others uh, cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Yeah, it's a parade. It doesn't say people were throwing out candy, but you can add that to your imagination. And even some of them didn't really know who this guy was, but they were in on it. If you're walking downtown and, and a guy in a big red velvet suit comes riding along, uh, you know, on a, some kind of wagon or something pulled by some elk? Oh, you're thinking, that guy's Santa. <laughs> At least he thinks he is. And then if he starts giving presents to everybody, you think, maybe he is. Because we've all seen those images. Or if a guy starts riding downtown, sitting up in the back of a convertible, holding a Stanley Cup, you know what to do. Get his autograph. He must be a great hockey player. Yeah, we'll, we'll participate in this. Sure. Or if you see a guy riding a donkey with his disciples behind him, riding into Jerusalem, the capital of the world, and people singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Yeah, I want to buy into that. I want Messiah. 
I'm going to get involved. I'll, I'll, I'll cut some branches. Woohoo! I know the lyrics, Hosanna. Oh, yeah, let's do this. And so this was this instant kind of celebrity. They cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Messiah is here. The crowds went before him and followed him. We're shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. The best explanation I've ever heard about the word Hosanna, I heard from Doug Krause years ago on this platform. And he was a Canucks fan. No comment. But he said there was something that happened in 1982. The Canucks are in the semifinals. They're in Chicago. They won game one in double overtime. Game two, they come back in Chicago, and if you were wearing blue, the refs were evil. It just looked like the refs were just blowing the game. And so the coach, Roger Nielsen, takes a towel and ties it to a hockey stick, and he starts waving it. A surrender flag. We give up. You do what you want, refs. Kind of funny. The refs didn't like it. They kicked him out. And the Canucks went on to lose 4-1. to one. So the series was tied. They packed up. They flew home, ready to carry on the series. And when they got to the airport, you know, usually there's a few fans there. And there were fans there, but they were waving white towels. <laughs> okay, well, we'll buy into this. You know, and they went home and they practiced and they went to the first game back in Vancouver and when they came on the ice, they looked around and the crowd was waving white towels. And this symbol of Nielsen's that was a sign of surrender, we quit, became triumph. The Canucks won the next three games, went to the Stanley Cup Finals, and that's where we're in the story. But this idea of a white flag beginning as a sign of surrender, becoming a symbol of triumph. The word Hosanna means, Lord, save us, please. They're quoting Psalm 118, but if you look up Psalm 118 in your Bible, it probably doesn't have the word Hosanna in it because the translators translated the Hebrew. Psalm 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Oh, Lord. And while the whole psalm isn't necessarily negative, it's not like one of David's blues songs, this phrase in the middle is really a cry of desperation. And if you're reading in Hebrew, it's something like hoshiana. But that phrase became so important that people just stuck with the Hebrew word, and it doesn't matter if they translated Bibles into Greek or, or, or English or Swahili. The, the word Hosanna is there. They left the Hebrew word there that means, Lord, save us, please. But that cry didn't stay a sound of desperation. It became a cry of triumph. And so when the crowd, the crowd see Jesus, they're not saying, oh, save. They're saying, he's saving us. Yeah, woohoo, Hosanna. It's a cry of triumph. 
It's a million white towels going round and round. We got this. We're going to win. We can't lose. Not even one game of bad refing is going to stop us now. We got the towels. Hosanna. Hosanna. The phrase comes up again two chapters later. Now, Matthew 21 is when Jesus is arriving to Jerusalem for his last visit because he knows this is the week he's going to die. And then there's still a few chapters of him going in and out of the city because what was happening in Jerusalem at this time is that all the families were picking their Passover lamb. And they would pick a perfect lamb and then bring it into the house and live with them for four or five days to make sure that it was perfect. And while the Jewish families were doing that in their homes, Jesus went into his home, his father's house, into the temple each day, and he said, here I am, check me out. Am I good enough to be your lamb? He answered their questions. He taught stuff that amazed them. He said, look at me. Am I perfect? And with him, it wasn't arrogance. He was saying, I'm the one. Can, can you disprove that I am the Messiah you're waiting for? And they couldn't. They, they couldn't. I mean, they tried all kinds of things. They even had, had people lying testimonies about, yeah, but he said he was going to do this. Oh, yeah. They couldn't really find anything wrong with him. The Lamb of God was perfect. But in the middle of that week, we hear the story of Matthew 23. Jesus has just been giving some hard teachings about mistakes that people had made all along the way. And then as he's coming to the city, he sees Jerusalem before him, and he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, we're in Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You wouldn't let me love you as much as I wanted to. You wouldn't trust me enough to do what I told you to do. Oh, Jerusalem. But then he goes on to say, see, your house is left to you desolate. And Jews looking around the countryside at that time might have said, yeah, it's not quite what we were hoping for. And a generation later, the armies of Rome will converge on this city and destroy it. Ruin its ramparts and disassemble the temple stone by stone. I tell you, he says, I tell you, you will not see me again, which in brackets means you will see me again when. I'm coming back when. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Messiah is waiting for when he comes in the clouds, waiting for the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to say, oh, save us. Oh, save us, Hosanna. And then it will be once again a cry of help. So we have this beautiful story. This guy rides into town. He looks like he could be Messiah. People were all excited. They're ready to accept him as Messiah. And a few days later, they yelling, crucify him. Probably some of the same voices that met him at the gate. So what went wrong? 
What didn't happen that should have happened? How can we have this triumphal entry on Palm Sunday and then a crucifixion a few days later? What went wrong? Well, he didn't come on the clouds, which is what they thought they needed most. They thought they needed the son of David to come and boot Rome out and set up a new kingdom with Jerusalem as its capital from which he would rule the world with justice, just like the prophets had said. That's what they were so desperate for that they weren't willing to consider anything else. God, if you're not going to live up to my expectations, I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need you. Hosanna, 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 nothing is changing, crucify him. He didn't kick Rome out. He didn't solve their important theological arguments. They weren't ready. They weren't ready yet. We often think we know what God should do in our lives, in our churches, in our communities. And we often think he should come riding in as the son of David with a mountain of angels behind him and solve the problems we've created. Then we'll believe in him. But he doesn't always do that. He doesn't often do that. Now, he is victorious. He's victorious over everything, nature and the spirit world. And any moment he wants, he can take over. So it's not that he lacked the ability there was something else. It wasn't the right time yet. Because you see, he actually could have lived up to their expectations. He had the wisdom and the power to do that. He had armies of angels just waiting for the word. He could have had them swoop down and destroy the Roman army. He could have built a capital in Jerusalem from where he could rule the world in justice. And he could have done miracles to prevent this and make that. He could have done that. But that wasn't really what they needed. Something else hadn't happened yet. And if they look back in scriptures, they would see God had a different plan. Plan A that he promised all along. At the end of the law, that long extensive writings of Moses that gave them all these commandments and stuff, it says, you're not going to do this. And you're going to get scattered into the nations. But when you come back, I will circumcise your hearts. God would change them. Isaiah said, God is telling you people that you have a heart of stone. You can't even feel what you're supposed to feel. But God's going to take out that heart of stone and put in a living heart. And then you'll be alive. Jeremiah the prophet said that God is going to come and renew his covenant. And to do that, he's not going to just rely on words written on paper or computer screens. He's going to write his word on your heart and your mind. And these three guys and so many other passages indicate that what God really wants to do is change people from the inside. And while the people were saying, Lord, save us, thinking of a political or a religious problem, God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to transform you. Because in all three of those passages, circumcising the hearts, the heart of stone, new covenant, God does it. The people don't get to the point where they deserve it. They can't work their way to get there and do it themselves. God has to do it. And so when Jesus rode in on a donkey, it wasn't time yet. 
But then a few days later, he died. And a few days later, he rose again. And by doing that, this first Adam, this first born from the dead, this first fruits of heaven, established his authority, demonstrated the power of God, and began to prepare the people for what God was going to do. And then he went away, and again they went, well, no, this isn't our plan. And he said, I don't care what your plan is. And a while later, he poured out his spirit, and he transformed people from the inside, circumcising their hearts, taking out a heart of stone, putting in his beating heart of flesh, and renewing the covenant by having it part of their minds and hearts. He was transforming people from the inside. That's so much more important than having a really strong army or a miracle worker sitting on your throne. He was establishing the eternal kingdom, but it didn't look like it to anybody else. It looked like he had failed, but he only failed in their expectations. They wouldn't let God wrap his arms around them like a mother hen. And that was the root of it. They wanted to be good little chickadees. They believed in the hen. They liked the hen. They wanted to be like the hen, but they thought they could do it without the hen's help. And he said, no, I have to embrace you. I have to embrace you. We are so often walking up that path to Jerusalem looking for the son of David to solve our earthly problems. And they're real problems, okay? We're not saying they're not important. We're, we're facing problems like cancer, broken homes, bankruptcy. And they're hard things. And we have those spiritual high moments. <laughs> you know, maybe it's part of a worship service, or, or you go to a weekend conference, or you find a new book, or you hear a new song, and, and we have those wave the palm branch moments where we think, yeah, it feels like God is arriving. And a few days later, the feeling is gone, and we go, God, you blew it. I was ready. And God says, no, you weren't. because I wanted to change your heart and your mind, not your circumstance. Paul lived this, right? Paul, the Apostle Paul had a deep experience of this. I mean, the guy had performed miracles. He spoke the Word of God. He had seen amazing things. But he wrote that he had a thorn in his flesh, and we're not sure what that is. Maybe he was going blind. Maybe he had some other sickness. We don't really know. It doesn't matter. The thing is that he asked God to take that away from him. Be the son of David for me. Be the ruling conqueror and save me from this physical problem that is slowing me down. And God said, nope. And after all the time that, God, that, that Paul had prayed to God to do this, he finally came to the realization that this is the one thing that's keeping me humble before God. This is the thing that I need to not get arrogant and think that I am the ruler. This is the thing that helps me say, Daddy, 
and lets God wrap his arms around me. That's what I needed. And he says, in my weakness, I am strong. He wasn't experiencing the son of David like he wanted to, like he had prayed for, like he used scripture to justify. He was experiencing the son of Joseph who came along and shared his suffering and said, I know, I know it's hard. It can be so hard sometimes. And then he says, let me tell you about Gethsemane. Let me tell you about the night that I prayed so hard with such intensity that sweat came out with blood in it. That, that's how tense he was. Let me tell you about begging God to remove this cup from me, but still having the strength to say, whatever you want, that is best. That's best. Now, we're thankful that there are two messiahs. That because of the cross and the grave and the sky, we have a messiah who has conquered and will conquer everything and does conquer things symbolically now, like sickness and problems that we take to prayer. He does that. Don't stop praying for those things. At the end of the service, our prayer teams will come forward you got something you want to pray about, bring it to them. They, they love to pray with people. They will, they will wrap you in their arms, just like God will do. And, and they'll say, okay, let's, let's go through this. So don't stop praying. Don't stop asking God for miracles. But understand that the miracles are the most important thing. The most important thing is your transformation. Jesus died for that, to change you. And so, so often in our lives when we want triumph, Jesus says, how about I share your sorrow, your sorrow instead? Because through the sorrow, I'm going to transform you if you know that I'm beside you through that, it will change you. You will have a new perspective on life and God. How about we do that? How about we go through the hard time together? And we make you the person your father knows you can be. How about we do that instead this time? Okay. God doesn't always give us what we ask for. But he does the right thing at the right time. That is faith. It's important that faith is also believing he will answer our prayers. That's, that's through Scripture. We don't, we don't want to weaken that idea at all, but we also know that faith is bigger than God answering our prayers. Faith is knowing that God is still in charge if he doesn't answer our prayers. God, the faith is knowing that God will make our lives better by not saving us from the thorn in our flesh and not getting rid of that Roman Empire that's living in our backyard. God has a time. And just like on this day, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, waving branches, singing songs, a little parade, he is also going to come riding on the clouds because that Messiah is still waiting. 
And it will all make sense. It will all fall into place. We will no longer doubt God's love and his power. We will wallow in the fact that we are wrapped in his arms. And that's how the next age begins. With us knowing God in a way that we never could have known if he hadn't gone to the cross. And so we celebrate the return of the king. Oh, Jerusalem was ready for a king. 600 years before this day, Zedekiah, the last king of the tribe of Judah, was dragged off into Babylon with his eyes gouged out. 600 years. There had been a while where there was a kingdom in Jerusalem, but it wasn't the tribe of Judah. The Maccabees were, were Levites. They were priests. And they had a kingdom there for a while, the Hasmoneans. But they couldn't fulfill Scripture because they weren't from the tribe of Judah. They weren't sons of David. 600 years from when Zedekiah was dragged out of the city to when Jesus rode in on a donkey. Oh, they were ready for the return of the king. They were... Well, in God's mind, they really weren't ready for the return of the king. Wouldn't it be nice sometimes if God just solved all of our problems? Check off the grocery list. Yep, did that, did that. And then what would we do? Throw the list away and say, all right, life's good. No, 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 no. God leaves some of those things on the checklist, so we're driven to our knees and we're saying, God, wrap me in your arms. I want to know you more. I need to know you more than I need to be cured. I need to know you more than I need whatever it is. That's the greatest mercy that God could give us. And so we are changed on the inside. 